This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Old Raymond Chandler once wrote the following about the kind of hero who shows up in detective fiction. Down these mean streets, a man must go who was not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. The detective in this kind of story must be such a man. He is the hero. He is everything. He must be a complete man and a common man and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honor by instinct, by inevitability, without thought of it, and certainly without saying it. He must be the best man in his world and a good enough man for any world. The best man in his world and a good enough man for any world, huh? Gee, that sounds a little like a buddy of ours out in Gordita Beach. He has an office now. It's like a day job and everything. Not quite a do-gooder, but somebody who does good. In his wonderful book, It's Okay With Me, Hollywood, the 1970s, and the Return of the Private Eye, today's guest writes of 1970s detective films as follows. There was something ominous about these movies and the nihilism that lurked at their center. Something thrillingly alive, urgent, of the moment. After Jaws and Star Wars, the studios figured out their new formulas and were less likely to take chances on bummer movies like these. The private eyes shrugged and went back to their offices, back into the shadows. They lit another cigarette, poured another drink, and waited for their next shot when all the steaminess at the heart of American life was up for grabs again. They could wait. After all, who is better equipped to poke around in that darkness than a private detective? That, my friends, is an absolutely wonderful, wonderful, wonderful excerpt from a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book. Again, It's Okay With Me, Hollywood, the 1970s, The Return of the Private Eye. Essential text if you are a nerd for this kind of film's noir shit, as we all are. I highly recommend it, and here today to poke around with me and our pal Doc in that foggy dark is author and writer for FlavorWire, the New York Times, Vulture, Vice, Slate, Rolling Stone, and many more, Mr. Jason Bailey. Hi! <laughs> That's a little, it is, I, like, I know what Drew is talking about now, it is strange to hear your work read with this sort of like intensity and enthusiasm and yeah yeah I'm, when uh if if uh if the audiobook opportunity comes up you're you're getting the call from me as well hey i'm here i'm here <laughs> with this dulcet voice it ready is. It's to roll very it's very comforting it's very uh it's very uh soothing it is a little asmr i got to say oh bless your heart it's a little yeah. warm bath of it's a little warm bath of honey my voice <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I also I, I appreciate. Thank you for, oh, thank you for saying. No, I was just to say thank you for saying such nice things about the book, uh, oh. which I haven't read in quite some time. So that was like, oh hey, that's that's not a bad piece of writing there. It's always fun when when you actually hear someone quote you or you see someone quote you something you agonized over, you thought was terrible, and you're like, oh, that's not the worst thing I ever did right. in my life. That's not too bad. Right. Um, also, I want to thank you for that galvanizing high. As you as you introduced yourself to the audience, you should have done that with jazz hands. It was a very jazz hands <laughs> eye. 
you know, I want I want to be welcoming, and uh, and uh, I am I'm very I'm very excited to be here. I enjoy the podcast very much. I I uh, I feel like I'm in in really esteemed company with some of these other guests. So yeah, I'm I'm happy to be here and hash out some uh, some seventies movie history. Well, hell, let's just you and me talk about how smart and good we are instead. What do you think? We're doing pretty good so far. I think so. Right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Audience gonna laugh that up. <laughs> I do appreciate you coming on today, and I think that you are an absolutely necessary guest for this show, especially this scene in particular. As I was telling you before we began recording, mm-hmm. when I was mapping out who should talk about what, you were the person I thought of for mm-hmm. this scene. I mm-hmm. needed I needed someone with the uh, 70s detective acumen right. to go toe-to-toe with me on this, so I'm very glad to have you here. But before before we drive before we drive right into that fog proper, I wanted to start by asking you what your relationship is to this film in general. I was actually, um, I mean, I'm a Paul Thomas Anderson fan times ten. Like I've I've been wild about the work since. Um, I mean, as with a lot of people, it started with Boogie Nights, um, seeing in, that in a theater in, you know, Wichita, Kansas in the fall of 97, because that's where I'm where I'm from originally as, you know, as a, uh, a young movie freak and really getting my hair blown back by that picture. And I've been an admirer ever since. With this one, I was lucky enough to be in one of the first, if not the first, large audiences to see it. Um it, on the the first uh, media screening, uh, press and industry industry screening at the 2014 New York Film Festival, um, and the way that they do them for these sort of the the big marquee titles, it was the centerpiece selection, I believe that year, is that they show it to press like in the morning, and then they do the sort of big premiere to the paying audience with you know everybody there that night. So we have a few hours jump on the on the ticket goers um this was the hottest ticket of that festival and sort of the 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 one that every critic needed to see because it was a world premiere which is not always the case on the big the big titles at new york film festival so and there are only so many seats in the walter reed theater so i i have a very clear memory of that being a 10 a.m sun uh, saturday morning screening and like we were starting to line up by about eight in the morning and it was a really like cold, miserable, drizzly New York Saturday morning with a long line of people. And it's an outdoor line uh, waiting to get in and a real sort of excitement. But also like we were kind of getting in the mood for a bummer detective movie because it was so <laughs> sort of cold and, and, and ugly out um when we went in and so we finally get in you know about a half hour before it starts and i i was in near the front of that line because i was trying to i was covering it for flavor wire i needed to get good photographs of the the press conference afterwards and they were you know pta and the whole cast were going to be there so i was i got in early i got down front and i was sort of sitting there for you know this half hour or so waiting for the movie and really thinking about what i was there to see and I, I, I swear this is true. I hatched the idea for the book that you just read from in that half hour while I was sitting there waiting for Inherent Vice. Um, 
So it wasn't even necessarily inspired by the movie as inspired by the idea for the movie, because I had already decided to write it before I'd seen a frame of it. But just <laughs> sitting there and thinking about, you know, starting out thinking about the long goodbye, because that had been such a centerpiece of, you know, sort of the buzz about the movie yeah. was that it, that that was the inspiration. But then as I was sitting there thinking about, well, but geez, there's also, you know, there's also Chinatown and there's also night moves and there's also Hickey and Boggs and, you know, there were in the shaft and there really were a lot of seventies private eye movies, weren't they? Hmm. I wonder why there were so many then. I wonder why we were interested in, uh, anti-authoritarian order seeking figures in the 1970s in particular. I wonder if there's, and the, and it really came to me like, Oh, there's a book in this. I should write this book. And so, you know, that was sort of in the back of my head as the lights go down and, and the film starts. And that was my first, and that was the first time seeing it. And again, in the wonderful situation of being in the first really audience that saw it uh, and thus being able to see it free of any expectation whatsoever, except sort of what I had pieced together from trailers and things I'd read, you know, sort of interviews but without having any reviews to sort of set the table for me well i'm going to be quiet for a minute so that i can double over and crumble into ash and dust with hate and envy that you were at this screening <laughs> which i believe uh increment vice alum drew McQueenie was at as well and uh, i died a little inside when he told me that too so thanks yeah. i appreciate it sure and, and so you got a book idea pleasure. out of it too son of a bitch yeah, um yeah Good morning. Before before we dive into the film, before we even move forward with Inherent Vice, I don't want to lose track of that thread. And for those who have not read your book, and everyone really should, it's really good. Why were there, in your opinion, so many detective films, especially the kind of neo-noir, anti-establishment detective films, why were they proliferating so much in the 70s, especially the first half of the 70s? I mean, I think it's a combination of two two things. And this this really is sort of the thesis of the book. The first is that, you know, the new Hollywood was so much about genre reinvention and so much about this sort of generation of film brats, as they were called, who, um, who were taking the opportunity sort of turned loose in the studio system to reimagine the genres that they grew up seeing in, you know, on television and in, you know, revival houses and sort of, you know, all of these classic genres that they now wanted to cast a fresh eye on and see through a new lens. And also with the, the, the restrictions peeled away you know the fact that this was that the the rating system was just a few years old and that they were able to get away with things in terms of adult content sex violence etc that the films that they were inspired by were not able to that they that had they had to do you know implicitly and now they could be explicit so that runs rampant through the 70s and you see that in the revisionist westerns you know the little big man mccabe and mrs miller you see it in the revisionist crime and gangster movies like the godfather and bonnie and clyde revisionist musicals like cabaret and new york new york but for some reason this the hard-boiled detective movie really 
got the revisionist treatment in a very strong way from a lot of really interesting filmmakers who all sort of took different approaches to it, which was the other thing that I, why I thought there was a book in this. And we can sort of get back to, to those, those approaches and those differences in, in ideas. I think the other reason was that it was sort of, it was a way to use genre and to use nostalgia to comment on what was happening in American society and in American politics at that particular moment. That we were coming out of the 1960s uh, and this period of incredible social upheaval and where it seemed like things were going, you know, like things were changing for the better. And in some ways they did and in some ways they didn't. And in some ways the revolution that, that people were waiting for never really came. And we go into this sort of period in the early '70s of a kind of a of a of a cultural and political backslide, um, with you know Nixon in power and the, you know the sort of the, the the fall of the left, and 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 we see this sort this very precise takedown of forces that were trying to really change the way America operated. And then on top of all of that, to then have Watergate happen and the degree to which that scandal and all of the revelations surrounding it toppled this institution of American government in a way that suddenly we didn't know who we could trust anymore. And all of the things that we've been hearing about the at the end of the 60s about how you couldn't trust government and you couldn't trust the police and, you know, all, all these these ideas that were easy to see as sort of extreme and wacko were now suddenly borne out by this very real scandal. And so in that way, I think the idea of the private eye was very attractive to audiences because this was someone who was smart and capable, but also a loner, also beholden to no police department or government or, you know what I mean? All of these sort of institutions yeah. that it was no longer fashionable or wise to trust. And the, the hard-boiled ethos of the 40s movies, of the sort of the man who, who had a code and who only wanted to find the truth and who could not be bought out or corrupted, like suddenly those ideas were very much in vogue again. And you saw it in the sort of revival of those movies, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, there was a huge Bogart revival on like college campuses. He became kind of a counterculture figure. So it's not surprising that filmmakers were sort of reaching back to this grand idea of the private detective and, and of this kind of, of hard-boiled protagonist and finding ways to sort of reframe him into this very fraught political climate. My God, that's a whole second. You write another one of these books, please. <laughs> please. This time on 80s detectives, I beg of you. <laughs> but no, I think you're so right. And yet it's interesting to see how that lineage pours into inherent vice mm -hmm. because first off I, I don't know if there's a word for the kind of detective movie inherent vices would you call it soft boiled that almost sounds insulting <laughs> but that's no, that's, that's great that's, that's kind of what right. it is yes because doc is incorruptible doc does stand and risk mm -hmm. 
everything he has to pull mm-hmm. to pull off these very minor moral goods, but they're the most that he can do, so he will risk all to do them. Yet right. at the same time, I would hesitate to call anything in the film hard-boiled, ex- with the exception of maybe the quite emotionally brutal sex scene towards yeah, the I was end. Gonna, yeah. I mean, that's that might be considered hard-boiled, but the rest, yeah, it's a soft-boiled movie. Right. And yet, it's interesting how we call it soft-boiled as if it might be less than serious it isn't and there's there's something that you wrote about or there's something you said when you wrote about this film in that review for flavor wire i'm going to quote you again so buckle up uh you wrote that uh in about paul thomas anderson making his big american statement films or what were perceived Uh as his big american statement films Mm -hmm. uh you wrote he took five years to make his 2007 oil epic there will be blood he took another five years to make 2012's Scientology-inspired The Master. He banged out his adaptation of Thomas Pinchon's Inherent Vice in two years, and you can feel the difference in the best possible way. Yeah. Do you, do you explain to me what you mean by that? Because t- I, I I feel like this film is as much an American epic as those 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 previous two films, but there is a a lank-limbed looseness to this yeah. film that the kind of Kubrickian precision of the, the two prior films totally lack. I could not agree more. And that, the, yes, that's what I'm getting at in that. And then and I guess I should, I guess I told you about how I, um, how, how I saw Inherent Vice, but didn't actually talk much about how it actually hit me on that first viewing. And that, then that will get to what I'm, what, a, to, to the point that, to answer the question that you're asking, what I've, my personal preference on Paul Thomas Anderson, and let me state, like, without question, the man has not made a bad film. The man has Absolutely not made a me- not. has not made a mediocre film. I think every film he's made is great. But when it's late at night and I'm looking for a comfort watch to like throw on while I'm doing busy work or just you know to sort of fall asleep to or whatever. I reach for the early stuff. I go for Boogie Nights. I go for Magnolia. I go for Punch Drunk Love. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Because it just the level at which they engage me is different. And I'm not begrudging the man the ability to evolve as a filmmaker. I think his evolution into the filmmaker he's become is a really fascinating one. But those early films are so shaggy and messy and open-hearted and human and human they really wear their hearts on on their sleeves in a way that the later work doesn't and it's clearly a conscious decision that he's made that he does that's that and you used the the same words that i would use the precision and the control of there will be blood of of the master of phantom thread even it's a very different kind of filmmaking than what he was doing early on. And I think one of the reasons that we're talking that, you know, that, that especially early on, he was compared to Altman so much. is not just a question of subject matter or structure. Um, Although I, you know, I do think it is interesting that those early films all have a very direct Altman uh, corollary. You know what I mean? That like that, 
Hard Eight slash Sydney is his California split, and Boogie Nights is his Nashville, yeah. and Magnolia is his Shortcuts, and Punch Drunk Love is his A Perfect Couple. And the later films, you can't line them up quite that evenly, except for The Long Goodbye to Inherent Vice. But so for me, when I went in to see it and I knew that there was all this sort of long goodbye Altman talk around it in a very kind of selfish way, I wanted him to regress a little bit. And I thought I was going to go in and see something much closer to the early work than to the later films. When in fact, what he was doing was sort of almost the best of both worlds that he kind of was a unification of the two totally totally that that it has the feel and the uh the approach and not to overuse the word the shagginess of those earlier films but it it has a similar sort of emotional ambiguity that you have to like dig out um the emotions of the film in a way that, that you don't with something like Magnolia, um, which he's talked about. And this is, you know, the quote that always comes up when you talk about Magnolia on film Twitter, someone always, you know, throws you the thing he said a few years ago about, I tell that kid to cut 20 minutes out of the movie. And, and my, uh, I also, I also love the tag. He also adds, I tell myself to calm the fuck down. Yes. And the, I have to tell you the thing that I love most about Magnolia, which is my favorite, probably Paul Thomas Anderson mm-hmm. movie, is that he doesn't calm the fuck down <laughs> and that it, that it has those 20 extra minutes. I yeah. know what he would take out based on the filmmaker that he is now. But that sort of raw open wound quality of that movie is what, for me, makes it so poignant and so powerful. So the first time I saw the uh, Inherent Vice... I went in with the minor expectation, but an expectation that I was going to be seeing something that was very Altman-esque and very early PTA. And so I had to rec- I had to wrestle with it and reckon with it a bit coming out. Um, and it took a second or third viewing to really wrap my arms around what he was doing and understand it and understand what he was doing, not understand the movie, which is a stupid thing to ask of a movie. Um, But, and once I had sort of freed myself of that expectation and allowed and went into it with a clearer understanding of what he was setting out to do, I better appreciated that he accomplished it. Yeah. But to go back to that original quote. Yeah. I, I feel like the fact that, that he, that he did, that he banged this one out in two years does give it a sort of off the cuff quality that the later films don't typically have. Yeah. It's, it's shaggy. It's a shaggy dog movie and there's nothing better than a shaggy dog detective movie. Exactly. Shaggy dog movies were made for detective. (laughs) That's why they're, they're made to go together. And, more, and I also want to say when I when I refer to those early films as human, that's not to say that I find films like Phantom Thread, totally. or The Master, or There Will Be Blood not human. It's they're about they're about deeply human concerns and deeply felt emotions, but they are expressed very coolly yep. and with a great deal of. It feels like whoever the omniscient presenter of those films is. They are someone who is very restrained and in control. Absolutely. Whereas there is very much that young man's game feeling mm-hmm. through the early films, uh, Sydney through Punch Drunk, of someone who 
is willing to risk this turning into a complete and total car wreck. Absolutely. But that's the way they're going to make this, and we're just going to see if we can get to the end without it all falling apart. Absolutely. That's, an, it's an, it's, that's a great way to make a film, but I can also understand why it'd be an exhausting way to make a film. Absolutely. As you kind of age out of that as a man into your 40s and 50s, why you might mm-hmm. want to slowly start just slowing things down, as he says, yes. just calming yes. the fuck down a little bit. Yes. And no, yet- someone someone smarter than me said, uh, I think on Twitter or maybe in an essay, that basically what we saw from in between the early films and the later films is his evolution from coke kid to weed dad. And I, I, I that's so pers- like. I couldn't put it more succinctly if I tried. Coke kid to weed dad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's literally the thing I could hear him. Someone's presenting him and him going, well, yeah, I mean, I could, <laughs> yeah, sure. It makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And that great Valley drawl of his. Yeah. That said, for all of the aching humanity that does throb through all of his work, but especially on the surface of those, those first four films, I personally, I mean, obviously, this is not going to surprise you or probably anyone else. I find Inherent Vice to be his most human film. Mm. In some ways that I can explain and have done so over every episode of this show up to now. And then in other ways, just there, there is an aching melancholy and sadness in wishing to do better. And I think that exists in all of his films, especially Magnolia, mm-hmm. your, your favorite. I think there is mm-hmm. so many of the characters just wish they had been better at this thing called. Yeah. That they, if, if they could have just been better at life, everything would have been okay. And, you know, people do give me a bit of shit for loving and hair advice more than any other PTA film. But I don't know how you watch a scene, basically any scene involving Coy Harlingen's family. Right. And Doc's relationship with them and everything he does to put them back together. Yeah. And I know people are probably sick of me mentioning that line where he's like, you know, nobody deserves to go through life without seeing their daughter. That don't sit well with me. But I don't know how you watch that scene and the scene in which he risks everything to get that family back together yeah. and not fall completely, uh, completely in love with this character and the world he tries to save. Yeah. There is there is a sweet nobility to this film that I don't think exists in any other. And there's something about any other of PTAs. And there is something about that that just strikes every every detective movie nerd chord in me. It goes off when he does yeah. that. And I yeah. and I love Doc for that. And I love PTA for presenting that because as you said, this is you know, you went into this expecting the boogie nights throwback i think and i and that's easy to expect because you know the you know the the word on the street with this this with this one was well it's going to be like a mix of long goodbye and big lebowski right and the trailers to this film which should be noted i believe were the first trailers since i think he's pta started cutting his own trailers with magnolia i believe the trailers for inherent vice were the first since magnolia that he did not cut himself right which I think explains why there was a little bit of a misdirect there. In that there, there, those those trailers were advertising the Naked Gun Four, right? Nineteen uh, seventies no, was... edition, and then you know, so despite those trailers, I I know that you went in kind of looking for the Boogie Nights throwback. I actually went into this, you know, knowing the pension book, really expecting this to be the third in his trilogy of like cold ass 
mm-hmm. American period pieces. Mm. And I was actually shocked and really, really rocked by how warm I found it to be. Mm-hmm. Because by that point, warmth was n- that kind of overt warmth was not something I was expecting from Paul Thomas Anderson anymore. And I don't, I and mean, that's not a complaint. I just, you know, that's something you, we have to reckon with when you talk about his filmography is that there are two very distinct halves mm-hmm. there. There is the, there's the Coke kid and there's weed dad. Yep. And we, you know, we are now kind of in full on weed dad mode. And with this one kind of brief respite in which he has a little bit of both. It's like weed dad found the old Coke in the garage mm-hmm. or something like that. <laughs> And just decide yeah. to have, you know, one last night out with the boys before he settles down. Yeah. And there's something there's something to that. The, the the warmth of this that really struck me yeah. in a way that I don't think I've been struck in, in, in quite a long time. And I am now doing the thing that everybody eventually does on this show once where we just kind of start rambling like an inherent vice character. But yeah, I, I, it's interesting that you were shocked by its 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 chilliness in some ways because i was so surprised at its warmth which i didn't Mm. think he was going to give us anymore and now speaking of warm detective films with a Uh private dick with a heart of gold at the center if we're gonna reckon with inherent vice and its legacy to other 70s detective films the first thing we have to talk about, and it's a film we've never really gone in depth in, gone in depth on rather, on this show, is The Long Goodbye. Yeah. It's a, it's a film that's afflicted with what Pauline Kale called that Los Angeles sickness. Yeah. It's, it's a film that you rightfully connect to Inherent Vice in your review by noting that it similar to, similarly told the story of a private eye in the 70s era Los Angeles that had left him behind. Yeah. That is so much of what Inherent Vice is to me. It's a film about what it is to be left behind and about have, about what it's like to be the survivor of loss and how in some ways surviving can be more of a curse than it is a blessing mm. because you're the one who's left behind. Mm-hmm. You're the one who's cursed to suffer and long for the memory of that which is no, that which is no longer coming back or who is no longer coming back. Right. And it's beneath the boot of that that the long buys Marlowe suffers as he's living in a decade that is not his in a world that is past him by much as it much as it seems that the just as the come down bummer of the 70s is a constant reminder to doc mm-hmm. of his beloved era that's now gone forever if it ever even quite existed the way he remembers it or imagines it that both men are forced to live in a world that has passed them by that they no longer belong in yeah. And how would you how explicit let's let's we all know that PTA loves Altman. We get that. Sure. We get sure. that. How explicit a connection do you really feel there is between the long goodbye and inherent vice when you strip that away? Right. It's it's tricky because in a lot of ways, I mean, the, the connection is very clear. And the again, the, the the man left behind that you mentioned is like that's. That really was the key big idea behind The Long Goodbye, was that uh, Altman... Rip, I think, uh, and, Rip Van Marlowe. Rip Van Marlowe, exactly. And if, you, and if you watch the movie with that in mind, and I had never noticed it until I was researching it and had read that quote, it opens... The movie starts with Philip Marlowe waking up, like literally 
starts with him in bed, wake, you know, his cat waking him up so that they can go off on this journey for cat food, which is like a thing that you would <laughs> never see in a 40s private detective movie. This just like 10 minute long character beat at the beginning. Um, but this idea that he's taken the character of Philip Marlowe of the quintessential hard boiled private eye and airlifted him and dropped him intact into a different time period in a completely different city and in a completely different kind of film than that character is usually seen in in a very seventies contemporary, I mean, a very Robert Altman overlapping dialogue, you know, like all of the sort of the earmarks of that era. So in that way, the, the line is very direct in other ways. There are other films from the era that are a little closer to inherent vice. Once you sort of, remove the idea that you're you're looking now through all of them through a second frame that all of these 70s private eye movies are are you know by definition postmodern that they're you know uh, reframing this 40s these 40s convention through the 1970s and then Paul Thomas Anderson's adding another frame because now here he is in 2014 making a movie about the 70s that's then referencing these 40s movies so we've got a, a dual dual lens there um but the thing that I sort of found when I was watching all of these movies to write the book is that really there's there's kind of a there was an approach that each of these filmmakers took um, of thinking about these characters and thinking about these stories and thinking about this genre and uh, a series of sort of three distinct choices that they made that determined what kind of movie they were going to do. Um, sort of a little, uh, um, a slot machine, if you will, you know, sort of boom, boom, boom. And some hit one point, some hit two, and some hit three in terms of what they're changing and what they're leaving intact. So the three areas that you're talking about are the the protagonist, um, and if that remains the same, the time period, and if that remains the same, and then the sort of style of filmmaking, the sort of style of storytelling, um, in terms of, of what they can do and how they do it. So when you're talking about something like Chinatown, Chinatown keeps basically the hard-boiled protagonist as in the 40s movies, keeps the 40s period setting, but then creates a friction and a tension by putting that character and that period through a 70s filmmaking lens through a lens through which we can be explicit about things like adultery and um, incest and also through which Polanski will often slip into very 70s ways of making a movie like there are handheld camera uh, scenes in that movie there are scenes where the violence is much rougher and more aggressive than it could be sure. in a 40s movie so that's one approach something like uh, the long goodbye doesn't change the protagonist, but it changes the setting and the style of movie making there. So that's, you know, that's a different way to tell that. And then there were several of which if inherent vice were made in the seventies, it would have been more of this ilk, the ones that change all three of those elements. So something like night moves or something like Hickey and Boggs or something like probably the closest corollary which is a, a much lesser seen movie called the big fix 
with uh, uh, Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, Richard Dreyfus playing. It's based on a series of the first of a series of books playing um, a, a, a PI named Moses Wine, who was a '60s Berkeley campus radical, um, trying to now make a living in the '70s by being a private detective and in the process of that film sort of comes back in contact with various figures from the 60s counterculture who have either sold out or who have you know now gone into politics and are corrupt um and it's very much a movie about a 60s figure lost in the 70s who is a private detective so again these are all films where they they take the the basic idea of the private eye movie but then uh, update and adjust it in all three of those sort of key elements. And in a lot of ways, that's what PTA is doing in Inherent Vice and what Pinchon was doing in the novel before him, is updating the, the protagonist to you know uh, a more contemporary figure who's seeing things in a more contemporary through a more contemporary lens, updating the period and also updating the kind of style of the of the filmmaking these the the sort of beautiful transitions that you've talked about previously on the podcast the the sort of altman-esque shagginess all of that is stuff that is very 70s cinema you are a thousand percent right i do want to throw a quick shout out to the late show just had to throw that out there. oh yes 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 gotta mention i i have to mention the late show i will say this though the late show is more of the long goodbye ilk because the protagonist is basically the same he's just lived longer and is sort of again sort of adrift um, long enough to see time pass him by exactly exactly what movie that is produced robert altman yeah and i and i just want to throw that out there in case someone hasn't seen it so many of these films especially the smaller ones like the big fix and the late show they run the risk of disappearing when they mm-hmm. don't get they don't get a blu-ray or they're not screened on tcm or anything like right. that uh please people if if anyone is out there looking for a good 70s detective movie seek out art carney in the late show it is absolutely, absolutely amazing and there's a cat there's mm-hmm. a cat so mm-hmm. it satisfies your cat, your your detective cat movie needs. Yep. Uh, if, if, when uh, the the long goodbye runs dry for you, now, would you say then, if you're programming your perfect double feature, detective movie double feature, and Inherent Vice is film one, The Big Fix is that your film two? I think so. I think so. And just and because of how well they speak together, they really they're really films in conversation with each other in terms of specific sort of political overtones, and that transition from the '60s to the '70s, which is so pronounced in both. Also, I would program it because it is one that's not very widely seen, that's not very well known. You know, ever uh, no no disrespect, I'll go see it every time. But you know, the the pairing of the long goodbye has been done a lot. But I don't think a lot of people know about the big fix or know about it in relation to to inherent vice. And as far as detective archetypes go, is there anyone closer to Doc than Moses Wine in seventies detective cinema? Is there anyone else that kind of has that same, God, how would you just, you know, PTA describes Doc as like a really loyal dog. Yes. It's just a good, <laughs> lovable, loyal dog. Yeah. And if that's one thing, you know, I think of these characters, you know, like you look at some the people like Hickey and Boggs who are just saddled with this soul-crushing despair. Right. Or someone like Marlo who, 
you do see feel like he is kind of quite heartbroken at the way things have turned out. But he he would never cop to that. Right. He'll he'll always you know mumble under his breath, do a little dance, mm-hmm. kill a guy if he has to. But yeah. he's never going to let you know how disappointed he is and how far yeah. we've let the world slide. And it seems like, and even Moses Wine isn't quite like Doc. I, I, that's what's so amazing about him is I don't think there really is no a detective in all of detective cinema like Larry Doc Sportello. He is an an entirely an incredibly unique creation in the genre. Mm-hmm. But I do think that. If anyone comes close, it might be Moses Wine. It, I could see that. It could also be um, Gene Hackman's character in Night Moves. That there's maybe there's... in ten more years, I could see Doc. Age. <laughs> I could see Doc. Yeah. If things kept yeah. going the way they did, exactly. He and, Sh- he and Shasta ending up rather unhappy the way yeah. Hackman does with his wife in Night Moves. You see yeah. the same thing. I do, I do. But I also see a little bit of a parallel between, you know, the sort of family unification, that sort of old-fashioned belief in the family um, that is what keeps Harry in Night Moves on that case after he's already been taken off of it. That sort of idea that, like, this girl has been taken and mistreated and someone has to be held responsible for that. That's not... I don't think too far removed from that sort of elemental goodness and, and sort of old fashioned family ideal that's somewhere in, in, in the garbage dump, as they say of, uh, (laughs) and Hey, uh, Gene Hackman's character in night moves does get a very doc like line out there when an older man is looking at this, this teenage girl who's walking by and he's like, ah, there ought to be a law against it. And and Hackman goes, there is, <laughs> which just seems like the kind of thing that Doc Doc would uh, quietly yep. stab, stab out there as somebody. Yep. Now, agreed. Much as I agree with you that Inherent Vice's connection to films like The Late Show and The Big Fix are far deeper and stronger and less superficial than its connection to The Long Goodbye, I do feel that this scene that we're here to talk about today is maybe the most long goodbye-esque, the most Altman-esque in the entirety of Vice's running time. Absolutely. The the washed out silvery fog, the Mm -hmm. the muted sound mix, the hazy, wryly smiling, but somehow downtrodden and disappointed vibe. It is all so mid-70s Altman to me. I almost expect Warren Beatty to go running by in in a big wool coat. (laughs) or a big fur coat rather yeah uh and he's always of course uh he's always the director i think of aside from pta when i watch this scene and i see coy harlingen walk out of that fog that just it just feels like a shot straight out of altman yeah Uh, and so let's you and me watch him come out of that fog together and then we'll come back and talk about it okay I would have come by your office, man, but I thought there might be unfriendly eyeballs. Well, is this uh, safe enough for you out here? Let's light this and pretend we came out to smoke. Uh-huh. I'm supposed to be dead. Well, there's also a rumor that you're not. It don't come as such great news being dead as part of my job image, like what I do. You working for these people here at the club? I don't know, maybe. That's where I pick up my paycheck. Where are you staying? house in Topanga Canyon, band I used to play for the boards. None of them know it's me. How can they not know it's you? 
Even when I was alive, they didn't know it was me. The sax player, the session guy. Mm. Plus, over the years, there's been a big turnover in personnel. Like the boards I played with, most of them gone off and formed other bands. Only one or two of the old crew left, and luckily they're suffering from heavy dopers' memory. Mm. The story is you came to grief behind some bad smack. You uh, still into that? No. I'm clean these days. I spent my time rehabilitating up and, you know, I... It's, it's okay, it's okay, I can't hear too good. Now I gotta talk about what I got my hair. Yeah. Look, the thing I wanted to see you about, I was wondering if you could check on a couple people, lady and a little, little girl, see if they're okay without bringing me into it. It's down in Torrance, just see if they're still living there. See what's in the driveway, law enforcement, the picture, any details you find interesting. Right, I'm on it. I can't pay you right now. When you can, unless you're one of those folks who believes information is money, in which case, I could ask you something. Bearing in mind that either I don't know, or it's my ass if I tell you. What is it? Never heard of the Golden Fang. Sure. It's a boat. A boat? Big schooner, somebody said. Screwing stuff in and out of the country, but no one wants to talk about it. Because? That was it. How do you know? Saw it sail in when I got here tonight. I don't know what I just saw. Me neither. Fact. I don't even want to know. Okay. Doc figured it might have been easier to let Coy know that Hope and Little Amethyst were doing just fine, but he had a rule against getting involved in matrimonials, which had just gone up in smoke, like the Asian indica in the joint they'd been smoking, creating an extra layer of fog on top of the one Doc was already standing inside of. One of my favorite lines in this movie. How... just... Doc being all cool. I don't hear too good. How can I talk about what I don't hear? <laughs> how how late, how cool he's being. What a cool dude yeah. he's being. How nice he's being the coy. You know, before anything else, I love the confidence and laid back energy of a film that refuses to actually reveal its real plot until 45 goddamn minutes into the picture. Yeah. Yeah. Because exactly. It's not until we meet Coy Harlingen that we begin to have the the faintest sense in the fog of what this film is really about in terms of plot dynamics. Okay, sure, we know it's about, I think by this point we can go, yeah, it's about lost love, it's about time leaving us behind and all those things. But by this point, I think as an audience, even if it's, if it's your first time, you're starting to get the sense, yeah, I don't think the Mickey Wolfman case is actually all that big a deal here. Right. I don't think I'm supposed to be tracking that at all. Right. And what this film is ultimately about really, and again, in terms of plot is the one good thing doc can accomplish in this post sixties hell. And right. it's not about him bringing down the Fang. It's not about him saving his relationship with Shasta. It's just about bringing this one family back together. And that kind of, even if he doesn't quite realize it until it's actually happening, that's his crucible in the film. 
is, right. is saving the Harlingens, which sounds like a TGIF sitcom. Saving the Harlingens. <laughs> Fridays this fall. But yeah. it, it's, a, it's a ballsy move. And, I, and I, I also do think it's only something that a director with the confidence of a weed dad right. could do, which is be like, you know, I'm just going to wait till 45 minutes in. Then I'll just kind of. I'll just kind of lazily introduce the actual right. thrust of the plot in the film. Well, and in a way, that's sort of the... It's one of the most pure examples of the MacGuffin theory that I've ever encountered. Um, which, it, for I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably sure those who are listening would know, but if in case you don't, the MacGuffin is a thing... is a theory that Alfred Hitchcock had that basically the MacGuffin is the thing that the movie is about so that it's about something. That the MacGuffin is the microfilm or the suitcase or the ticking clock or what, but the actual details and complexities of that MacGuffin are not important. They exist yeah. so that something exists to hang what he's actually interested in on. And... So that was the thing that would always throw me when I would encounter people who who complained about the complexity of the plot of Inherent Vice or complained that it, this didn't make sense or they couldn't follow this or that is my honest my response was usually, oh, my God, you were paying attention to all that stuff. And I don't mean <laughs> to, to imply that I'm not paying attention, but I'm just like when I'm watching a movie like this, that's not what I'm focusing on. I'm aware that those things are there and I'm assuming that I'm in fine hands that are going to deliver me to an end point, but I'm not, I don't get all wrapped up in all of those. I know, especially when you're talking about something that's, that's, you know, that's Marlowe uh, influence, something with, you know, with anything resembling the big sleep in its DNA that, you know, as you and Drew talked about, we're talking about the journey. We're not talking about the destination. So in a way, like the fact that he does hold off this long is a really clear signal to us that that we're not supposed to to get too wrapped up in the details of this thing. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people I think something that hangs up people who don't enjoy this film as much as we do is the Wolfman case. Mm -hmm. uh, a previous guest, Fran Hoffner, you know, she mentioned that that's basically where she drops out of the film is when Mickey Wolfman returns. Mm -hmm. And she's like, wait, 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 wait. There's still 45 minutes to the movie after he gets back. I'm done. Right. I, I don't I don't have it in me. Like, I thought that right. was the thing I'm supposed to care about. He gets the, whoever had him, the fang, the boat, the, the cartel, whomever. He's back. So why why am I still watching this movie? And it's because. The Wolfman plot, it's its the ear in blue velvet. It's just the tunnel right. through which we walk with Doc yep. to get to the mystery at the real heart of this thing. Yeah. And it's also fascinating to me. It does feel very, in a way, 70s detective movie to me that, you know, we're going into this expecting, oh, this is going to be this massive labyrinthian organization that he's got to he's got to dissolve from Take the down, inside yeah, out. Yeah, and he's yeah. going to. He's going to burn the whole goddamn building down and walk out with it exploding behind him. But he's going to be too cool to actually look back and see it blow up. No, it's none of that. It's just one of God knows how many hundreds of thousands of families that have been destroyed by this organization. It's Doc being able to save one of them. Right. You know, just, well, just one of them. 
And that's the thing that's important, I think, to, to note is that really a lot of in the pure 70s detective movies, the good ones, the ones we're talking about, not the sort of like, you know, Burt Reynolds and Seamus or any of these sort of like forgotten ones. But in the which great is it, which is a fun one. We just go let's, let's fun. Throw that out. Let's it's throw that fine. out. Want to make sure. Fine. But, you know, in a lot of these films. The way, the way that they all sort of subverted the conventions of the 40s private detective movies were that they put their protagonist up against these great forces, these these powerful figures or whatever, and they failed. I mean, yeah. like, Jack Nicholson, you know, Jake Giddes fails at the end of Chinatown. That's part of the reason why that ending is such a kick in the gut. You know, the guy Hickey and Boggs don't actually thwart much of anything by the end of that movie. By the end of it, they're just taking a stand so they don't feel completely powerless. Um, so the idea that he's not going to single-handedly take down the Golden Fang is, is a pretty pure 70s cynicism slash nihilism that runs pretty rampant through at least like i say the best of these films yeah and, and there's something about there's something about the small stakes of this story that actually make totally. it as we as we were saying earlier it, it, or as i was saying earlier uh one of the things that makes this film so human the most human of his works to me or, or, or the film in which the throb of humanity is at its strongest is this is nothing major. This is this is not the high stakes action Doc is involved in. This is right. one raggedy ass hippie family of, right. of of former junkies. And again, you know, I've said it before. It's not like he even learns what the Fang really is or right. what kind of power structure it has if is it more than a boat? Is it this interconnected lattice of, of various uh, nefarious interests? Is it this guy with the savings and loan haircut whose daughter I once rescued that's now, you know, buying off this family with heroin? We, we don't know who's at the top. We don't know who's at the bottom. We don't know if Nixon's at the top. We don't know if Nixon's just a stooge at the bottom. We don't even crack the fang. All he's able to do, it reminds me of there's, um, there's a great line in the first season of True Detective near the end. And spoilers if someone out there hasn't seen that season. Oh, uh, well. it's 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 been six years, guys. Come on. Yeah. Uh, uh, the main uh, one of the main characters, Rust Cole, they've uh, he and his partner, Marty, they've just taken down a serial killer who appears to have been part of a much larger, darker organization. And that the serial killer was essentially the the person on the lowest economic rung of the power strata of this this dark cult mm -hmm. whatever it might have been and rust is lamenting after they've killed him and they're recouping in the hospital he's like there were more of them out there we didn't get them all and his partner marty says and we're not gonna get them all that's not the kind of story this is but we got mm -hmm. our guy mm -hmm. and so much of that seems to be infused in the harlingen storyline for me which is that's not the kind of story this is. That's right. not the kind of detective story this is. This isn't Marlowe taking down an entire organization. This is one hippie getting one other hippie out. Right. He, he's going to get his guy and get him out. And, you know, as you've said, you, you, you've mentioned Drew's episode a few times. It really struck me that episode when Drew said, sometimes in a world as incohate and dark and evil 
as the one dark find as the one doc excuse me finds himself in and kind of like the one we find ourselves in now it's those little decencies those the right. just the little ones that you can manage to pull off by the skin of your teeth those are the ones that matter most because in mm-hmm. the end the big ones that you try to pull off are not going to be successful you're not going right. to take down the thing but you might get that one family out right and if that doesn't break your heart jason if that doesn't break your heart you're not human you're you're <laughs> weed dad you're right. You're 100 percent right. Well, no, and the the only other thing I I think is is key too is that there, there's a couple one of uh, one of my favorite little writerly touches is whenever you know the the little couplet of of dialogue that uh, that is actually a, a stealth mission statement about the entire film, um, and I feel like what you're talking about whether he he never he doesn't get to the bottom of the fang he doesn't even understand the fang is that the last two lines of dialogue in the scene are i don't know what i just saw me neither in fact i don't even want to know and that like those that exchange like that's that's the the manifesto for the entire film i mean that's like that's what the whole movie ultimately boils down to he doesn't know what he just saw and he doesn't want to know if this was an altman picture that would have been the last line of the movie oh totally 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 would have been the last line and you're right and it's and oh boy I love to the the strangeness of meeting Koi in what you call in your book that everyone knows everyone vibe that made L.A. Yes. a small enough town for Charles Manson to hang out with Dennis Wilson and how it manifests itself in Vice's clever riff on the oldest detective story standby. The detective whose two simultaneous cases end up connected. And as you point out, Doc is hired by Hope to find Koi. He finds Koi, who then hires him to check up on Hope. Yes. And I love that Doc, despite his avowed stances on not taking up matrimonials, he can't help but, well, right. help. Yes. There's that there's that good dogness in him that he he, yes. get, he can't help but get involved in this mess. But I also, I, I thought that was a very clever way of Pinchon in the book, and then, of course, Anderson in the film, being able to riff on that trope that's always the same case. It's always. all one big case. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And but and that that big idea that that you do read in, you know, in Didion about how Los Angeles in this period was a very small town in a lot of ways and where doors were sort of unlocked and everyone was sort of high on this 60s optimism. And in two nights in August of 1969, all the doors in town slammed shut and locked and locked and locked. And that sort and how that sort of changed everything in terms of how people related to each other in that city. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's so great that you bring that up. That's something I've, I've been wanting to mention for a couple of episodes now is I think on the part of some of these characters, they look back on that time and go, see, that was the purity. That was when, you know, you could right. walk up to Sharon Tate's house in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and it not be a weird thing that you're looking around for Terry Melcher. And yet I think I think the anger that infuses Pinchon's novel, and I do actually, I think it's actually some of the anger that, that Doc awakens to in this film is not that not the thought that man that's when it was good that when we had it that way when we were that optimistic it's almost like an anger at how did we not see how stupid we were sure how did we not see it's like whenever you watch 
uh, footage of the Kennedy assassination, and you're like, mm-hmm. who in their right mind puts a president in an open top car right. in fucking Texas, Dallas, Texas, in 1963? Who in their right mind? Right. Of course, Oliver Stone has ideas about who would do that. Of but course. Who in their right mind would be so naive as to think that that would just work itself out? And I feel like sure. so much of the pain of of Doc in this film and of characters like Coy, who I think suffers a great deal the way Coy, the way Doc does and the way Bigfoot does, it's this looking back and thinking, how did we ever think it was going to work out? How could right. we possibly have been so naive? And I think that that is actually something that that Coy suffers from especially because he is someone who was naive enough. This guy who and he and his wife were strung out on heroin. They got mm-hmm. their own infant daughter hooked on heroin and, you know, on, on heroin provided uh, from Indochina by the Golden Fang. And so he turns to this group, Vigilant California for help, which unbeknownst to him is another arm of the Fang. And it gets him cleaned up at the Fang run Criscylodone Institute and then has him doing work of the Fang via Vigilant California. He's a floater. He's someone to be used and abused until he's burned out, at which yep. point they'll hook him on heroin again. And yep. then they'll route out his teeth so he can go to Rudy Blatnoy DDS and get some fine chompers like his wife. And the place that we find him out now, and especially that we'll see in the next Koi scene at the Topanga house, is a man who's just like, how could I have been so stupid as to think right. that this idealism would have ever worked. And that's something that I don't think gets spoken about as much, even on this show about Inherent Vice, is for me, it's not so much the what did we do wrong? What went wrong? We were on the right side of things. What soured? It's that that anger of, was it always this bad? Was it always sour? And we were just too goddamn high to see that. Right. And I feel like you could all that also tie that into Doc's relationship with Shasta Fay. In that you get the sense that maybe Doc's perception of his what he and Shasta had is not what she thought it was. Mm-hmm. And that I feel like a big part of that sex scene to come, and we're doing the inherent the increment vice thing where we're moving away from the scene at hand. <laughs> but I feel like a big part of that sex scene is her going, Doc, you don't know who I am. Like, right. do you really want to see who I am? Do you want right. to know? And do you really think you'd be cool with it if you knew who I was and what I wanted? And that that's, you know, you want to talk about as you're standing outside uh, the New York Film Fest thinking that you're going to walk into, you know, feeling like it's going to maybe be a cold-ass bummer. That's, a, that's as cold and hard and 70s. Mm-hmm as it gets that idea of, oh, no, we were never going to be saved. It's not that we fucked it up. It's that salvation didn't exist. The, 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 the 60s idea of salvation, it never existed to begin with. Yep. And now we find ourselves just lost in this fog of the aftermath, and no one knows no one knows what they just heard. And you know what? They don't want to know. Yeah. That's where they are now. Yeah. And quick pivot before we get too dark, <laughs> before we get too heavy. Yeah, yeah. We mentioned earlier Dennis Wilson. Uh, I believe at the Q and A that you were so lucky to attend. Uh oh. That it was made clear that Coy's look was a mix of Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys and Zoot from the Muppets, which is <laughs> as a, about as much a capital C choice on behalf of PTA as I can possibly imagine. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love the other thing. 
and I don't. I, I hope it's not in poor taste to 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 mention this when you're talking about Owen Wilson in this movie, and weirdly, and especially in this scene. You know, I have found a real in all of the work he's done in the past. I guess it's God. It's been like twelve years now, but since he that he had that really bad patch and that suicide attempt um a real vulnerability to a lot of the work that he did after that moment yeah. in his life but never as strongly as i felt it in in this film that i i, I as i was watching him the first time i saw the movie in this scene and the sort of the 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 quietness and the gentleness of the way they're interacting in this scene. I was I it I thought about that for the first time in years that he seems so vulnerable in this movie and so gentle and quiet and and it's also the way that it's staged and the way that they're doing as as you guys discussed the kind of ASMR dialogue between the <laughs> two of them in this scene that quietness which I which is also it's such an interesting choice and a thing I I that you wouldn't expect um, that, you know, this is like a big victory, like found someone he is uh, hired to find, but it's done in, in such a mellow, low key, uh, in that, that, the, that quiet conversation. It's, it's totally a... unceremonious. Yeah. Like, yeah. Even the way he just comes walking out of the fog, like, like it's a totally. stage show, like, okay, okay, Jade, totally. you're off. And then Coy yeah. come up. There's no, like the camera angle doesn't even change. It's the same shot of. When he's mm -hmm. talking to Jade and she walks off and then out comes Koi. There's there's no fanfare. Yeah. You know, this is a guy that we've been told about 10, 15 minutes ago is missing. That is, everyone says he's dead, but the, the evidence points not. So you're like, okay, this is going to be some big conspiranoid, right. Uh, right. crazy thing has gone on. Someone's maybe put a snatch on him or faked his death. What? And he just comes ambling out mm -hmm. with that Owen Wilson draw going, oh, yeah, yeah. maybe help me. Um, <laughs> but with no, again, and that's where I, I felt like this felt so Altman-esque to me that I mm -hmm. could see Altman getting a kick out of the ballsiness of just doing this all in a oneer, all one yeah, take. Oh, oh totally. Just forget it. We're not going to do a new angle. We're just going to kind of, yeah. we'll, we'll push in. I could see, I could hear him going, we'll, yeah. we'll push in when we yeah. need to. They'll most push in. <laughs> give, give me a wall of smoke in the back. That that same sort of like fog from the ground of, of McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah. And yeah, push in a little bit and have him walk in. He wouldn't have pushed though. He'd done one of those clunky dolly or one of those clunky zoom lens things. But anyway. I like it when he does. That'd be nice. I, be nice. I, I love Altman. I love <laughs> I love the clunky zooms. I really do. And you and I think you are also so right about you know reading the book. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I don't think it's stated explicitly, but in the book, Coy does have a very Dennis Wilson vibe. Mm -hmm. You know, it's you know, the overalls, the beard. There's mm -hmm. just something and if you and if anyone who, you know, listen to dennis wilson's great 70s music you know he, he was a mellow dude laid back dude i would if i was doing my fantasy football casting of of the novel before the film came out owen wilson would have never occurred to me as coy harlingen never ever would have occurred to me honestly i would have thought of someone like benicio del toro doing kind of one of mm -hmm. his quiet one of his quiet mumbly routines mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, very, very introverted performances because it is it is noted in the book that Koi is a whisperer. He's got a junkie's whisper, as Pinchon mm, calls it. Interesting. And, and so, you know, he's always he's just kind of laid back, keeping things like this. He's got the weed dad thing, Jason, the mm-hmm. weed dad. It all it, it comes back to that. Bless you. Always comes back to, to the weed dad. Yeah. Always comes back to weed dad. He was a coke boy or is a smack boy. Now he's a weed dad. There you go. Um, and yet, as you said, and I, I, I don't know if it's just the wisdom that comes with age or whether it is because, as you say, you know, he did he did go through hell and come out the other side. And if that if that mellowed him in some way. But it is it is shocking to see him as coy and not see him as maybe the Owen Wilson. We know the guy that's always like, wow. Mm-hmm. But, in, but instead, just the sad, mournful. Right. The, the the sadness that comes with age. And as I said earlier, that idea that, oh, no, we were never going to make it. This was fucked from the beginning. And he's got that that amazing line because he is a session sax player. He's got that amazing line in his next scene. I blew this solo, man. I blew it when he's talking about his, his life and his family and his daughter. Yeah. I blew this. So that as funny as that was the first time I saw it because, Hey, he's a sax player. You go back. That line is haunting mm-hmm. because I think that's the through line for so many of these characters for doc, for Shasta, for Bigfoot, for Koi, for basically anyone who isn't a straight up stone cold villain in this film they're all thinking some variation of I blew the solo. I did yeah. it wrong. I don't know why. I, I don't know how I got into this fog. I don't even want to know, but I know yeah. that I fucked it up. I know that yep. this is not where I was supposed to be. This is not where I wanted to be. I thought I'd do something good, thought I'd get out, get myself away from my family. I didn't know I was going to be, you know, working undercover at Nixon rallies and picking up my check at club Asiatique in the fog. And I just, yeah. I just want to know if my little girl's okay. That's yeah. all. That's all. I, that's all I can have now. I'm not even going to get a victory. I just need to know that she's okay. No LAPD hassles going down. Yeah. God, that's heartbreaking. I'm going to get all emotional in front of you. It is. It is. No, you're right. Now, something that I always do is I, I I have a tendency to kind of, if you haven't noticed, pushed my view of what inherent vice is. Um, Every episode, you know, I've made it clear that this to me, it's a story of it's just it's, it's about loss and it's about the inherent vice of time and mm-hmm. what it takes for from us. And as we kind of are getting into the home stretch here and winding this down, I'm I kind of want to cede that to someone else for a moment, because as I'm as I'm demanding that you, that you listen to me and hear me when I tell you what this is about for Koi and what this is about for Doc, what is inherent vice to you? What is this film to you? As a 70s detective film scholar and someone who obsesses on this stuff, I'm sure maybe even more than I do, what kind of film is this and what does it mean to you? I mean, the problem is that I almost think in order to give as concise an answer as you can give to that, you have to have seen it as many times as you have. Um, <laughs> I don't know if everyone's got that kind of time, Jason. I don't either. I don't either. But I, by which I mean, a lo- you know, most films reveal themselves to you on a first or maybe a second viewing. When I rewatched it the other night so that I was prepared for to talk to you today, it was my fourth time seeing it. And I still am digging things out of it. I'm still wrapping my head around it. But I think the idea 
I guess the the ideas that we're talking about specifically about regret and about lost opportunities and helplessness are what jump out at me when you put it through again that sort of post postmodernist frame the 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 sort of thematic ideas that Anderson clearly took away from these 70s films and put into this one the i think i think it does go back to what we were talking about earlier in this conversation about the the notions of what was in our grasp in the 60s what seemed on the verge of turning over and we got close enough that we could taste it and then it just slipped away and that feeling is all over the best of those films from the 70s and i think it's it's just an inherent part of the the dna of this film um, a, a a what part of the dna jason sorry. i i i I I searched for a synonym frantically <laughs> and I didn't I I didn't have one. It Hi, I, we're, we're I, gonna write, you, I write for a living. Hello. We're gonna pretend you did that on purpose. No, no, <laughs> I love it. We're all but, with it, man. But I do. I I think that that's ultimately again why so many filmmakers wanted to tell these stories then, and that that was what he took away from them was that feeling of of bleakness and hopelessness that it was here it was in our reach and we didn't it didn't happen and now we're sort of stuck in this um while at the same time recognizing that it is a warmer and sunnier movie and I mean that in almost a literal sense, that it is such a like, it's got that in, that incredible sort of California golden glow about it. Yep. But in a lot of ways, that I think is one of the things that makes the movie so fascinating is the tension between the sort of mournfulness and regret and then feeling it in, in this California sun blasting down on your face. <laughs> If that makes any sense. No, and it's that's a wonderful contrast in the movie too. You know, Kim Morgan writes about that in her essay on the film about how there's an edge to the sunlight mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. It's almost like it's not totally innocent. Yep. And there's a darkness in that light. Yep. And I think that that's. I think you're so right in the way you just described this film and 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 describing that darkness in the light the way that you just did, uh, which is exactly I have to admit why. I selfishly, selfishly, selfishly had you come on the show today because ever since your book came out, I've wanted to just pick your brain about detective movies and have a conversation like this. <laughs> and so I am so, so happy that you were able to come on today and to talk about this scene with me because ever since I've read this, I've wanted to shoot the shit about Inherent Vice with you and see so what you had to say about it. So I am so thankful that you came on today. I'm so thankful that you came on to talk about Inherent Vice with me and also your book, which I'm going to be a total whore for. And I want to plug it again. The man, the man's name is Jason Bailey. The name of the book, It's Okay With Me, Hollywood, the 1970s and the return of the private eye. There's a big, gorgeous picture of my man, Elliot Gould, on the cover. 
walking up the beach, walking up the beach in a suit and his smoke, man. He oh, is, God. It, oh, it's just so that. perfect. So that's perfect. A, that's a good man right there, Philip Marlowe. Yeah, the book is available via Amazon. You can get it in a paperback or in a Kindle edition, uh, and it's uh, very reasonably priced. And uh, tell everybody else where they can find your stuff. Um, I write. I just recently took over as uh, editor in chief of a wonderful little film site called Crooked Marquee. So you can visit there, crookedmarquee.com. I write there sometimes, and uh, and edit as well. Um, occasionally, you'll find me at the New York Times. I do the updated every week list of the best movies on Netflix and Amazon Prime. Uh, you can also read my my stuff occasionally on Vulture and uh, older pieces at flavorwire.com, which is no longer publishing, but uh, I did some good stuff there. Also, just follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Jason Dash Bailey with the dash spelled out. Um, right now I'm tweeting a lot about my newest book, which I hand over to the publisher here in about a month. And I'm very, very excited about. Can you announce the name of that? Or are we going to keep that a secret? No, no secrets at all. No, never too early to start publicizing that. It's called Fun City Cinema, New York and the Movies That Made It. And it's a 100-year history of both New York City and filmmaking in New York City and how the great New York movies are also documentaries about what New York was at that particular moment. Oof. I cannot wait for that. Again. It's pretty good. I got to say, it's, I'm feeling pretty good about this one. Well, hot damn. Again, Jason, thank you for coming on and talking about one of the nerdiest possible subjects and one of the nerdiest <laughs> possible podcasts of all time. Thanks for coming and talking with me about Private Eyes, which I could I could do 7 to 80 to 90 to 100 <laughs> uh, more episodes just on that alone. But I do think people would run out of steam and a little run out of patience as if they haven't already with me. So I appreciate you coming on today. And... Again, thank you so much for this wonderful book, which I really, really love. Thank you and for saying that, and th thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Yes, it was, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Please join me next week when myself and a very special guest will meet the schooner Golden Fang out of Charlotte Amelie. The best man in his world, and a good enough man for any world. Boy, oh boy. Raymond sure has Doc's number, all right. And we have it, too. A man who can't save the world, because no one can, but he might just be able to save a single little family from the pearlescent maw of the Golden Fang. And maybe, in this weary world, that counts for something. Maybe that's enough. Maybe, in this tale of missing real estate big shots and mysterious boats and government conspiracies and secret societies, that's the one part of this crazy story that really matters. That's worth holding on to. We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.